1: Coming to you from Classic City,
0: the capital of the
1: Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Charlie. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast brought to you by our very good friends at Alumni Hall. Hopefully you guys caught the Valentine's Day flash deal they offered yesterday, 20% off for all customers on all purchases. I try to tweet that stuff out, but they do that stuff all the time, guys. So it really would be in your best interest, if you're looking for Georgia gear anytime to go ahead and go to alumnihall.com and sign up for their email alerts. Just give them your email, and anytime there's a flash deal, you don't have to re- rely on me to give you that information. They will send it directly to your email inbox, so you'll know the days to go and rack up all that awesome Georgia gear that they have to offer which of course is the best selection anywhere on planet earth but again make sure you guys check out alumni hall for all your georgia gear and accessory needs online at alumnihall.com or if you happen to be in the athens area you can also stop by in store inside the epps bridge shopping center all right guys i am your host tyler and back with me today making an appearance for the third straight week during the off season maybe her off season vacation will start at some point is my coach charlie charlie thank you once again for joining us and helping us out today happy to be here you definitely sound happy to be here or i don't know maybe you sound like you're being kidnapped right now but i'm happy that you're here maybe one day curtis will be back uh he's just been out of pocket guys and he bought the new house was dealing with stuff with that for a couple of weeks and then he was at a wedding last weekend i'm hoping Fingers crossed. No promises to have him back on next week because I've been waiting to do a full-on, way too early 2023 Georgia football season preview. That we, we do that each year around this time, usually a couple weeks ago. But um, we've been waiting on him to kind of clear his schedule a little bit. So hopefully we'll be able to make that happen. If not, we'll uh, maybe I'll just come on here and do it alone. Maybe Charlie will jump on with me, but we'll we'll have that for you guys sooner rather than later. But Charlie's hearing me today. And we have some questions to answer. As you guys know, we never go dark on this podcast. So anytime you have any questions, please feel free to send them to us. Anytime, I'll put the call out occasionally um, just to say, hey, if you have any questions, we're going to be running a mailbag episode. But anytime anything comes to mind that you want us to discuss on the show, please hit us up on Twitter at glory underscore Our DMs are open. You can just tweet us if that's easier for you. If you don't have social media, you can email us. That's podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram. Just search for us there, follow us there, and you guys can send us your questions any way that works for you. But we do have quite a few that we've gotten over the past week or two. And some of these are more um, timely, that these are more topical, so we wanted to make sure we didn't wait too long to discuss them before they're irrelevant, because we try to answer as many of these questions as we possibly can. So today is going to be one of those mailbag episodes, and Charlie, I'm going to go ahead and turn things over to you. What do you got for me today?
2: All right. Well, it's only February, but I'm already going to predict that the quarterback battle to replace Stetson Bennett is going to be the topic of the offseason. And I think this is the first question we've gotten about it. So this comes from Aaron. He says... We know we have an entire offseason to talk about this, and he's fascinated by the pending quarterback battle. So which of the three options between Carson Beck, Brock Vandegrift, and Gunnar Stockton is most likely to not be on the roster when the 2023 season starts up?
1: Yeah, Charlie, I totally agree with you here. I fully anticipate this being the topic of the offseason. And the offseason is young. You're right. We have not talked about this. Well, who's this from Aaron? Yeah, Aaron, you're right. Man, we have not touched on this yet. The reason for that is I again, I've been going back to what I said a few minutes ago, been waiting to get Curtis back on here so that we can do that full-on 2023 way too early season preview, which of course, we will prominently discuss the quarterback battle because that is like Charlie said, the topic of the offseason and that's where all eyes are going to be. And uh, we'll see how that plays out. So, I think it's going to be wide open, obviously. You know, Carson Beck goes in there with a little bit of a leg up being the backup last year getting uh, more playing time than, than both Venegriff and Stockton combined but I, I do think it'll be a wide open battle I don't think that th- that decision has been made clearly it has not been made but this is going to be a battle that we follow all offseason long I do not expect it to be decided in the spring I don't think even if Kirby has in his mind who he wants it to be or you know Todd Munkin says he's the one if he's still our OC when it when the time comes that he gets to make that decision so I don't even if we know who we are kind of Lean towards. I don't think we'll make that public or even let them know because we want it to play out into the spurt into the fall, and we'd love to keep all those guys on on the roster. So this is something that we're going to talk about a lot. But let's go ahead and, and let's address it for the first time here. And I like this question because I think it's an interesting angle. It's a very interesting way to approach it. So of the three options at quarterback, who is most likely to not be on the roster when the 2023 season opens? I'm I'm going to have to throw Beck out of this. Because again, I I think it's a wide open battle, but I do think he is, if anyone has a leg up, it's Carson Beck. He's been in the system a year longer than Brock Vandegrift. He was the backup last year, which means he got more reps than Vandegrift. Stockton didn't really any reps last year other than on the scout team once the season kicked off. So Beck is the guy with the leg up. He's the most likely to win the job. Does that mean he will win the job? Absolutely not. But if you had to project right now who's most likely based on past history, it would be Carson Beck. But saying that, I'm also not convinced he will win the job, because the big thing for me, and we'll talk a lot more about this, especially once we get Curtis back on here and we we do that preview episode, but I'm not sold on Carson Beck's mobility. He's not a statue. He can move a little bit. I I think he can do a little bit outside the pocket, but he's certainly not even on Stetson Bennett's level of athleticism, whereas Van and Stockton are even more athletic. Both of them are more athletic than Stetson was. Stetson is a fantastic athlete. I don't think he got near enough credit for that. I think we started to see that as a season war on. I think the nation started to see that even, though, even if they don't want to admit it. And go back to 2021, guys. What did Kirby and Todd Munkin like when Munkin got to speak late in the season with the uh college football playoff press conferences? What did they both consistently say when asked why Stetson is still the quarterback and why J.T. Daniels has not got an opportunity to get that job back? And consistently both of them mentioned mobility first and foremost. They said it over and over and over again. And a lot of people didn't buy it. There's always an excuse. And for, Honestly, the first time I heard it, I was like, okay, whatever. But the more you watch and the more you hear him say it and be consistent with it, you're like, okay, you know what? Like Stetson does make some plays with his legs that help us win football games, that help extend plays, that help extend drives. And I would start to notice multiple plays in the game where it'd be like, okay, if JT Daniels is in the game right here, we don't score. We don't extend this drive. I'm not saying we, because we blew up almost everybody last year. I'm not saying that we are in 2021. I'm not saying that we there were games we necessarily would have lost, but they would have been much closer. Maybe there are some games that we would have lost. I think Tennessee, for example, you know, that in the first quarter of that game, it was a relatively competitive game. But there were some plays that Stetson made late in the first half that he made with his legs. And those are plays I remember vividly sitting there in the stadium there and in the stadium and saying, like, if JT's in there, like, that's a sack. Like, there's no way that's a score. And Stetson made that play. So I don't think that was lip service. I think they truly believed that. And I have come to believe over the years, and this is not just a, a this year thing for me, but over the past couple of years, I've come to firmly believe that you have to have mobility at the quarterback position if you really want to win at the highest level. Now there are a few exceptions here and there, like Joe Burrow is not the most dynamic athlete, but that guy actually moves well. He he escapes the pocket well. He's deceptively athletic, and he was he, he even ran a little bit more at the college level at LSU. And then there's Mac Jones, who's probably the most glaring counterexample to this. But that was also the COVID year. He had a ton of talent around him. But like, I'm not saying you flat out cannot win at the highest level, and win championships without a mobile quarterback. But if you don't have a mobile quarterback, everything else around the quarterback has to be perfect and like elite. And that was the case with Mac Jones. You when you have a Heisman Trophy winning wide receiver, and then you have Jalen Waddle as well. That was the case with Mac Jones. Plus, it was COVID, and like there was just a weird year. I mean, hey, they won the title, so give them credit. But it was just a weird, different kind of year. But look at the the New Year Six this year, guys. So just let's look at the teams that were in the New Year New Year Six this year: Tennessee, mobile quarterback; Georgia, mobile quarterback; TCU, very mobile quarterback; Michigan, extremely mobile quarterback; Clemson, mobile quarterback; Kansas State, mobile quarterback or at least mobile enough, in half the year, you have Martinez, who was an extremely mobile quarterback. The only exception there in the New Year, New year Six this year was Ohio State, really. It was really Ohio State. It, it was C.J. Stroud. He was the only exception. Even Tulane. USC with Caleb Williams. All those teams have mobile quarterbacks. The only exception out of those 12 teams in the college playoff, at least on the top of my head, was C.J. Stroud in Ohio State. And remember what I said? You have to have a lead town around you. Everything else has to be perfect. Well, you have maybe the best receiving core in the country around you, with Ohio State to make to kind of minimize the need for you to be a mobile guy. And what did C.J. Stroud have to do, guys? Think about it. In the college playoff, in the biggest game of his of his life, in the Peach Bowl, what did C.J. Stroud have to do that he hadn't done all season to put them in a position to win that game? He had to run. He had to use his legs far more than he had at any point in his career. Far more. I mean, I, I told you guys coming to that game that this is a dude that just refuses to run. He just won't do it. Even when there's like open space, 30 yards, no one around. He won't run. He just won't. In the Peace Bowl, he did. Because when you play elite talent, it's a difference maker. You almost have to have a quarterback that can run, or at least is a willing runner and can extend plays. I maybe mean, pick up a first down here or there with his legs. It's almost. Again, Mac Jones is the one that kind of throws this argument off. It's like, well, he can't move at all. But really, outside of me, it's the exception. It is certainly, you are the exception if you're not a mobile quarterback and your team is winning at the highest level. And I'm not sure that Beck's that guy. Now, again, I don't think Beck's a statue. I think he's more mobile than C.J. Stroud is. But he's certainly not on Stetson's level. And both Vandergriff and Stockton are much more mobile than Carson Beck is. That's why I think the window is open for one of those guys. If they can come in and earn the trust of the coaches and show that they have caught up with Beck from a knowledge of the offense standpoint, the door is open. Honestly, like if, if Todd Munkin does leave, and I think we have a question about this later on, but if Todd Munkin does leave... I think that might open the door even more for Vanegre for Stockton because whoever we bring in will probably have some carryover from what we had because I'm sure Kirby, you know, Kirby has a, a style of offense that he wants us to run. He wants us to be a tough, physical, run-the-ball-down-your-throat run kind of team hit play-action, vertical shots off that. Be explosive is what he wants, right? But it's not going to be Todd Munkin. And uh, now, Beck's. it's not just like knowing a system. It's just football knowledge. Been in the system for a while. He's been in college for a while. So it still be a little bit of an edge, but less of an edge if we bring in a different offense coordinator. But I, I do think the mobility gives Vandergriff and Stockton a fighting chance here, but right now you do have to say Carson Beck is is the odds on favorite. Now, that leaves us Vandergriff for Stockton. If I'm throwing back out Vandergriff for Stockton as the most likely to transfer. And to me, if it's down to these two, It's a no-brainer. It's Brock Vandegrift. He'd be the one that I think is most likely to not be in the roster, which is just a different way to say he's going to transfer, um, of these three guys. And the reason I say that between Vandegrift and Stockton is that Stockton has another year of class separation between himself and Carson Beck. Vandegrift is just the year after Beck. So if Beck wins this job, that means Vandegrift would be, like the first time he could start would be going into his fourth year in college. I don't think he's gonna sit around, and that's assuming that, that Beck actually leaves after this year if he wins the job. I don't think Brock Vanerif will stick around in that scenario. I think he's going to be around through spring practice, maybe fall camp to see if he has a chance to win to win the job. But if he gets this, just a hint that he's not going to be the guy, I, I think he'd be more likely to transfer Because Stockton. Like if he doesn't win the job, okay, well there's two years class separation between him and Beck. So it, even if Beck stays two more years, Stockton will at least have an opportunity in year four on campus to be the starting quarterback and win that job. And maybe Beck, because if Beck wins the job, probably means he's pretty good, right? Because I think we have a talented quarterback room. And if, you, if you're that good that you win the job then you and you and you hang on to the job, you probably are going to be gone after after this, this next year as a starter. I mean, there's a very good chance of that. So maybe... You see Stockton the chance to to take the job as a third year guy, so I, I think it's definitely Vanegriff. If one of them transfers, I think he's most likely, and that's not a done deal. I mean Beck could transfer. Like, if Beck loses the job, he's definitely gone. I just I throw him out because I think he's the he's the favorite right now to win the job with everything staying the same. Like if Munkin stays and doesn't leave, and, and that and that whole deal. But I'm gonna throw him out. Vanegriff Stockton between those two. I think because Vandergriff doesn't have as much class separation between him and Beck, he'd be more likely to transfer if Beck wins a job than Gunnar Stockton would. But that's just the tip of the surface here, talking about this quarterback battle, and we will get dive into this much, much more as the offseason progresses.
2: All right, our next question is from Paul. He says, before the Peach Bowl, you talked about our lack of success against top 15 offenses. Great passing attacks in particular. So what needs to happen in order for us to have more success this season when we inevitably face a better offense?
1: Man, this is one heck of a question. Paul always brings the heat with his questions, always really insightful stuff, and I love this one, Paul. In fact, like this this question honestly probably deserves its own episode, and maybe I'll dive into it a little bit more later in the off-season when we get to like scheme theme month in May. Maybe we'll come back, circle back, and, and do a deeper dive into it, but I do want to at least share some thoughts with you right now. I don't want to make you wait all the way until May, so we'll touch on a little bit here because this is just a fantastic question. And what Paul is referencing, guys, I'm sure a lot of you heard if you were listening back in December when I was doing some of the Peach Bowl preview stuff, he's referencing uh, some of the numbers I threw out there relating to our lack of success against top 15 passing offenses going back to 2019. And I'll update that a little bit here. So the the, the numbers I gave you were pre-Peach Bowl. If you throw in the Peach Bowl, because Ohio State was top 15 nationally last season in passing offense... In our last seven games dating back to 2019 against top 15 passing offenses, we have given up an average of 366 yards passing in those games, an average of 3.1 passing touchdowns in those games, and an average of a 67% completion percentage. In five of those seven games against top 15 passing offenses going back to 2019, we surrendered three or more passing touchdowns. And in four of those seven games, so more than half, we surrendered four or more passing touchdowns. So looking at those numbers and just watching and experiencing all of these games in real time, that has clearly been the Achilles heel of these fantastic elite Georgia defenses. And, and I'm not trying to take it away from our defenses. They have been elite, as good as it gets in the country, but they haven't been perfect. And the issue that we have faced is is when we play teams that have comparable talent to what we have, like up and down their roster, that recruit at a comparable level. The Ohio States, the Alabamas, the LSUs, those teams that have similar-ish talent. I'm not saying they have more talent, but like it's close enough where the margins are small. The reality is we have had a lot of issues defending those type of passing games. That's just a stark reality. And the biggest culprit in my mind is our lack of, of an elite pass rush off the edge this year we didn't rush the passer well at all whether it's from the edge whether it was linebackers whatever we were doing we were not rushing the passer well we were 89th nationally in sack rate this year now 2021 we were much better we were 20th nationally in sack rate but how much of that was actually coming from edge rushers like really how much of that was coming from edge rushers sure at manerson you know times before he had to leave the team before he was dismissed from the team and Trayvon Walker at times, but not consistently. Nolan Smith at times, but not consistently. The majority of our pass rush last season came from our inside linebackers. And sure, we'd rush them off the edges sometimes, but those were our dudes. We just haven't had an elite edge rusher with the exception of Aziz Ojalari in 2020. But even as good as Aziz was, he wasn't like Will Anderson level off the edge as a pass rusher. He wasn't Aiden Hutchinson level off off the edge as a pass rusher, He wasn't that type of guy. Really, really, really good player for us and a, the best pass rusher we've had off the edge in quite some time, but he wasn't that level. He wasn't quite that caliber. And I say this is the biggest issue because number one, let's establish this. If you have a defense that is playing an elite offense with an elite quarterback, with an elite group of receivers, like, oh, I don't know, Ohio State, like, oh, I don't know, LSU with Joe Burrow and all those receivers with Jamar Chase and Jefferson, Alabama and the SEC Championship game in 2021 with Bryce Young and John Mechie and Jamison Williams. Florida with Kyle Trask and Kadarius Toney and Kyle Pitts. If you let teams with quarterbacks like those guys and receivers like that just sit back there and operate unmolested in the pocket, they are going to torch you. It doesn't matter how good your secondary is. They cannot cover those guys for that long because those receivers are elite. And the way the rules have been rewritten over the years to favor offenses, there's just no way you're going to be able to consistently cover those guys when they're allowed to just sit back there and have a good old time, have a cup of coffee while they're sitting in the pocket trying to wait for somebody to get open. That's why I was borderline devastated when Nolan Smith went out in the Florida game because even though he was never an elite pass rusher force, elite player, not necessarily an elite pass rusher, he was much better as a run defender. He was our best pass rusher off the edge. And with him out, it's like who are our options? Like Robert Beal, I know he was the leading sack man from 2021, but like he's not really that kind of guy either and he didn't really have a fantastic year rushing the passer this year with more focus on him and then chaz chambliss who you know chaz is an awesome guy and a great player you know, the kind of guy you want on your team but he wasn't ready to be that kind of guy and i don't know if he ever will be that kind of guy rushing the passer and then marvin jones jr highly recruited coming to high school this is a guy that was also banged up most of the year and never really got the chance to be much of a factor and it almost came back to bite us, guys. In that Ohio State game, I know there was a lot of holding going on. Trust me, I know that. We But we couldn't get pressure on him. We could not get consistent pressure on C.J. Shaw. Far too often, he was able to sit back there in a completely clean pocket. And there were some times where we got some pressure, but he did the unthinkable, which he had done his entire career. and was able to escape the pocket and make some things happen with his legs, which we, which we had not accounted for. We were not putting a spy on him because why wouldn't you in the game planning? Because he's never done that in his entire career and he was able to hurt us a little bit. So that's number one. You you just can't let elite offenses with elite quarterbacks and elite skill talent sit back there with all that time and not have to feel the pressure. It doesn't matter how talented your, your defense is, they're going to carve you up. And then number two, if you don't get the pressure off the edge, then what do you have to do? Well, you have to resort to using your interior defensive linemen like Jalen Carter and more specifically you also have to use your inside linebackers which is what we did to great effect in 2021 we did it this year as well and we and they had their moments you know Pop made a huge sack late in the game in the fourth quarter uh in the Peach Bowl to really push back Ohio State and force him to kick a field goal which I think is more one of the more underrated plays in that game but I mean clearly guys like we did not rush the passer from the linebacker position nearly as efficiently this past season as we did in 2021 but when you have to resort to rushing your linebackers like that, that leaves you vulnerable to getting beat with the pass game because you're taking one of your more athletic guys that can actually operate in space and give you someone from a pass coverage standpoint, an inside linebacker, who's not an usually elite pass cover guy, but far more elite than maybe a five-tech of in that you're having to drop into coverage or an outside linebacker that you're dropping into coverage with a fire zone to compensate for the inside linebacker being brought in a blitz because we don't like to bring more than four guys like we we do it occasionally because you can't do one thing all the time but we really don't most of the time when we're bringing pressure from the from the inside linebacker position we're still only bringing four guys we're just switching up which four guys we're bringing if you're bringing inside linebackers there's a good chance a lot of the time for us we're dropping whether it's Michael Williams or Robert Beale or Nolan Smith or Chaz Chambers, we're dropping one of those guys into coverage. And yeah, they're in coverage, but those guys don't cover. They're kind of just taking up space in a zone, right? And, and occasionally they might have a, a running back on a wheel route and you don't want to see that. Nolan Smith, I'm okay with that, but anybody else, no, you're not okay with that. So it just makes you more vulnerable to those elite offenses, elite quarterbacks, and elite receivers actually being able to carve you up. So to me, it all comes back to that. Can we find a way to get more? consistent pressure off the edge. Can we find some difference makers rushing the passer off the edge? we tried to address in this recruiting class getting guys like Damon Williams and Gabe Harris and Samuel and Pimba, Marvin Jones Jr. I'm, I'm still a believer in him. I think he can be a big-time player for us. He's out right now. I think it's I know it's a shoulder injury he had surgery on. I think I think it's a labor. I think it's something very similar to what Brock dealt with last offseason, but he's yeah, he's not really going to be a factor, at least in the spring, and that kind of sets back his development. Darius Smith's a guy that I'm very intrigued by. Um, he got hurt the times last year. He to add some weight, but he's got athleticism for days, but we need to find an answer there. We've got to find an answer there Jalen Carter saved us a lot last year being able to give us some pass rush from the interior and we were able to kind of loop him and do some stunts get him on the edge and it matched up one-on-one with guys but we have got to it's very simple guys we have got to find a way to provide more of a consistent pass rush off the edge without having to bring inside linebackers and I think our staff knows that which is why you saw us go out and get three elite dudes rushing the passer off the edge at the outside linebacker position at the jack position this year
0: Okay, from Alexander, he says that if the NCAA gets rid
2: of the early signing period in December, like you mentioned last week, does that mean recruits who enroll early won't be able to participate in bowl practices? And would recruits even still be able to enroll in January and participate in winter workouts?
1: Sure. let me ask you, I, I don't know, I mean, I definitely was not a D1 level athlete. I know you were a fantastic athlete once upon a time. D1 level? No, probably not. No. You were you were a pretty awesome gymnast, right, before the knees blew out? Not like that. Not like D1, not not gym dog level? No. Okay, well let's just let's play pretend here. Like if you were a D1 level college or high school athlete where...
2: Tennis. Okay,
1: I, I, that makes a lot of sense. Even though you didn't play tennis in high school, right? No. Okay, so you didn't play tennis in high school, but let's just... Okay, we'll pretend. It's pretend time, right? So mm-hmm. let's say you are a D1 caliber tennis player, and you have the option to enroll early, graduate early, graduate like mid-year, and uh, halfway through your, your senior year, which means you miss the entire spring season of your senior year. So if you're a tennis player, that means you don't play a spring senior season of tennis. Would you do that? Like, is that something that would be attractive to you?
2: Absolutely. I wish I could have graduated early from high school as it is.
1: Well, you could have.
2: Just to get away.
1: From high school?
2: Absolutely.
1: You didn't want to go to prom and have a... No,
2: living hell.
1: Really? Yes. Were you the cool kid in the corner?
2: Obviously not.
1: That, that, I was being facetious, Charlie. You, were the cool kid in the corner, is the one sitting there by himself, no one talking to him, right? Oh, well, absolutely. That—that yeah. that was you, yes. Well, that was me too. So, I mean, we have that in common. But uh, you, really, you would you would forego the back half of your senior year of high school to get started and be around people that. Or older than you, that you're probably like, you to get hazed. and. I
2: did joint enrollment, so I wouldn't have to go to high school for most of the day. They
1: call it dual enrollment now. That's how old you are. But <laughs> I, I guess that's how old I am, too. I went
2: to college for most of the day.
1: You were smarter than me. I did not do what is now dual enrollment and what was once upon a time, what, joint enrollment? Is that what it was called, right?
2: Yeah, I'm pretty sure it means the same thing.
1: So even if you were a tennis player, it does mean the same thing. I know, semantics. Even if you were a tennis player and your season's in the spring, you would have foregone your senior senior season of tennis?
2: Yeah.
1: Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Just curious, I want to get your take on that. Because I, I see these guys do that, and I'm always like, would I do that? Like, I... Probably, if I was that kind of a player, my goal is to make it to the NFL and I want to get head start on my career, yeah, absolutely, you do that because you get a jump start on the on the rest of the class. You get spring practice, whole nine yards. You kind of go through all of that, so you get to fall camp when battles are really decided, playing time is really decided. You have a leg up, so I would do it, but it'd be weird, like to skip all that stuff that you know you traditionally experience as a senior in high school at the back half of your senior year. But anyway, back to the question. I appreciate the question, Alexander, and the answer to all parts of your questions is yes. The early signing period just allows players to go ahead and lock in officially with their school, even if they're not going to enroll early. Just because you sign the early signing period does not mean that you are enrolling early. You were just signing a letter of intent saying, I'm going to attend this school. Now, a lot of those guys that sign early in December do end up enrolling early, more now than, than we've ever seen before, but not necessarily all of those guys. Really, the early signing period, it came about because coaches were tired of babysitting all the recruits for another two months going to February. They kind of want to just go ahead and put all those guys away and say, we got you locked in, and now we can just focus our time on the last few remaining targets like we've done this year like with deuce robinson and and walker Lyon for a little bit there but that was the initial impetus behind it coaches just didn't want to have to babysit an entire class for another two months they want a little bit of a of, of some time off some downtime a little bit of breathing room but really it's kind of created more issues some unintended consequences because now you have they could not have seen nil coming and the transfer portal coming when they were trying to do this uh, this early signing period initially but now you have like the transfer portal you have early signing period you got bowl prep get all this going at the same time and now it's has created an absolute disaster for coaches and is putting more stress on them than ever before. So that's why they're revisiting the calendar. And I I don't know if they will officially change, but I know it's certainly in discussions and there's a couple different options out there. I've seen a couple different ideas and proposals. We'll see if anything actually comes of it. But if they do eliminate the early signing period or if they move it to a different time of year, all those guys can still enroll early. If you are graduating from high school early, you can still enroll early. Because the thing is, you technically don't have to sign a letter of intent. I mean, the lever intent is just saying, I intend to go to this school when it's time for me to go to this school. You don't have to sign that. You can just enroll to school and show up on campus and, and do all your financial aid stuff and sign the scholarship and, and the whole thing is taken care of, but you won't necessarily have to sign that lever intent. Because think about it, before the early signing period, guys were enrolling early. There weren't nearly as many of them, but they were, and the way what you used to do is you would back count, right? Like, so if we, if we didn't sign... A full 25 class the year before, let's say we signed 23 guys, well it means we have two extra spots we can add to this class and you could bat and like the guys who enrolled early didn't count against that year's class. So there was a whole it was a whole thing. And there's a lot of, not a lot of math, but it, it got confusing for people because you were back counting and forward counting and gray shirting and doing different things. But guys could always enroll early. It's just a matter of did you get enough credits to actually graduate from high school prior to the spring semester starting in January if the answer is yes then yeah if you're ready go ahead and roll early and and get started in January that was always the case and if they do eliminate the early signing period it's still going to be the case I mean there were guys under Mark Rick who were not again not a ton but there were guys under Mark Rick who would come and uh, they would participate in bowl practices so yes that will still be allowed to happen and certainly enrolling in January to start the, the the spring term that will still be allowed to happen but great question
2: well, some of you may or may not have watched the Georgia basketball game last night and against have Old Miss. It was a disaster. Yeah, would they lose by two? Uh,
1: four? I was very frustrated at the end, so I was just saying that we lost. I was there. I had to get up and leave because I was very, very, very frustrated with how that game went. Um, two, three, four, something like that. All
2: right, well, this next question is about basketball. It comes from Corey. He asked, What is going on with the basketball team's recent struggles on the court after a strong start? He knows you said you were excited about the direction of the program last month. Do you still feel that way? Were you too quick to praise Mike White for a turnaround?
1: First off, let me say I appreciate the question. I really do. But guys, 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 guys. I've seen some of this on social media, and I usually don't put much stock into it because it's social media. I mean, it's a carnival funhouse of craziness and just toxicity, right? That's where people go to complain, invent, and say crazy things they can do it in anonymity behind a screen and no one knows who they are. Fire Mike White? Like we're done with Mike White. I've seen this sentiment on social media over the past couple of weeks, and I and I I get it. Like we're we're struggling right now, but let's also not forget where this program is coming from. Let's not forget what Mike White inherited. This is a team that won six games last year, guys. And it wasn't a COVID year. It was a full season. We won six games. We won one game in conference. We were one in 17. We've already doubled those numbers. In fact, we doubled those numbers shortly after the new year. Anything else after that, honestly, is gravy. I think Mike White, even if we lose the rest of our games, has done a really good job. Now, we don't want to lose the rest of our games. I want us to win games. Losing last night, I will say this, losing last night to Ole Miss, losing that game was unacceptable. That, that's not okay. Like, that game is a game we have to win. And I say that because Ole Miss is freaking terrible. I don't know how much college basketball you watch, and if, if you watch college basketball, you're probably not watching Ole Miss a lot because they're terrible. But I've watched uh, like two or three of their games. I had some money on those games, and that team is awesome awful they are so bad Kermit Davis might get fired this year that's a bad basketball team and we had them at home now I know Terry Roberts did not play Terry Roberts is clearly our best player he's been out with a concussion hopefully we get him back this weekend against Kentucky because if not might not be a great uh, a great Saturday because I gotta go to that. I'm going to that game not got to go I'm excited to go to that game and I'd like to see us be competitive but without him, mm, I don't know. So I know he wasn't playing. But still, it's at home against the worst team in the league. And you have two players that had some of their best games of, of, of the season. I mean, Braylon Bridges, 26 points, 11 reboard, eleven rebounds. Might be the best game that he's ever had at Georgia. And Kario Car- Oquendo had a really good game. He had 19 points. On 50% shooting from the field. That's a great game for Cario after he had a horrible game on the road against AM over the weekend. So when we get a combined 45 points from Bridges and Aquino, how do you not win that game at home? How do you not win that game at home? As for what the issues really are, it means a couple of things. Number one, we don't have enough guys that are scoring. Like we just don't have enough scoring. So we have too many guys that play significant minutes that give you absolutely nothing offensively. M.A. Moncrief, Juice Holt, Margez McBride, and Frank Anselm yesterday. So four players. Four players combined for 68 minutes in that game against Ole Miss. And they scored a combined five points. 68 minutes, five points. And that's not really me cherry-picking stats, guys. That's, generally speaking, all year what we've seen. Now, McBride, the past two games coming into the Ole Miss game, had two of the best, or I guess two of the last three games, two of the best games of his of his Georgia career where he was actually hitting shots. And Because we brought him in as basically a three-point guy, shooting over 40% from North Texas, has not hit really anything all year long. Good, solid defender for us, but has not been hitting shots with inconsistency. consistency, lost his starting job primarily because of that. And he had two good games. Um, he had a game against, uh, against Auburn where he, I think he hit six threes in that game. But those are the exceptions. What we saw last night, 68 minutes, five points from those four guys combined, that's kind of been the rule all year long. We just have too many guys when they're on the court. They don't give us anything offensively. There's no production whatsoever. And then you know, there are, most of those guys like Moncrief, Anselm especially, uh, also Holt, they're out there for defensive purposes, defensive purposes, and rebounding purposes but they haven't been giving us as much on the defensive end and on the boards as they were earlier in the season right now. So if you can't score and you're not defending, you're not rebounding the way that you need to, then why are you out there? Like that's the problem. And the issue is we just don't have really have anybody else. Now we didn't get out rebounded last night. We uh are actually tied, 36 rebounds apiece. But prior to that, I mean I talked about this last week on our our Fast 5 episode. I think it was six of our last seven games, we've been out-rebounding, and by almost 10 10 boards a game, that's crazy, that's another reason, we're just not rebounding well enough, and I know we we did not get out-rebounded last night, but we got out-rebounded in key situations, late in the game, we got a stop we needed, they got an offensive rebound, got fouled, the guy misses one free throw, so we would have been down by two with the ball, but they get the offensive rebound off the freaking free throw, when it came down to it, we needed a rebound, we couldn't get it done, And now, of course, with with Terry Roberts out, who has basically been our only consistent threat offensively all year long, it just exacerbates all those issues, and we just have trouble scoring, and we go through droughts. Like we went, it was eight possessions late in the second half where we had to lead eight possessions in a row where we don't score, we don't score a bucket. And that can happen. And I'm not saying with Terry Roberts, like it can't still happen because we have, we've had offensive issues at times, even with Roberts in there. But Roberts is a gamer and he steps up in, in big moments. And you'd like to think when you, it's late in the game like that, you need a bucket to, to maintain a lead or take the lead back. Terry Roberts to be able to get there, at least creates. And that's what Terry does. Like, he can score on his own, he can create for himself, he also creates for others. So without him, we don't have that consistent scoring threat. And we don't have a guy that's consistently creating for others. And all of that is combining for some issues right now, but they're not good. Like losing Ole Miss at home, losing Vanderbilt at home a couple of weeks ago, barely beating South Carolina in overtime at home, having to come back late in the game to do that. Not a good look. We are not playing good basketball right now, um, but the reality is when it really comes down to it, we just don't have a great roster. Um, Mike White did the best he could, man. Like, in a short amount of time to put this roster together, it was a really hard sell when you're trying to sell a program that won six games overall in one game in the league. It's tough when you're recruiting all these other programs for a lot of these same guys. You kind of get what you get. There's slim pickings out there. And that's why I felt this year was important as a foundational year for us to be able to go out and sell to potential transfer guys next year. Hey, look at the progress we've made. So that's why games like this hurt. I know that we're not making the tournament this year. I am fully aware of that, guys. I understand the roster that we have and where we are, but. I want us to win as many games as possible so that we can make ourselves a more attractive destination for transfer guys, for high school guys, so that we can build the roster out. Because we, just, like, we have to improve the roster. That's what it comes down to. We have to improve the roster. And the only way to do that is to start winning some games and showing guys that if you come here, we can do something. You can actually win. And right now, when you lose Ole Miss at home, a terrible Ole Miss team, that hurts. That definitely hurts.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right. Keith asks After our experience with
2: Ohio State in the Peach Bowl, where does Ryan Day stand on your list of people you hate most in college
1: football? I'm going to have to let you take this in Charlie, because I think he, just knowing you and hearing you talk about him, I think he might be at the top of your list, like your hate list. I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth. How do you feel about Ryan Day? I know he's up there.
2: Off the top of my head, yeah, he's pretty up there. Him and Lincoln Riley, I think, are kind of scumbags.
1: Okay, so uh, defend that. Scumbags. What is it about Ryan Day? Because you, honestly, you hated him way before this whole, well, like... He,
2: he's associated with Urban Meyer.
1: Right, and Urban Meyer is the greatest known scumbag in, in I mean, the football world right now, at least, like, publicly. You said it. I'm okay. I said it. I said it. But you hate it. I will give you credit. You no, hated Orion Day like, yeah. before the whole Marvin Harris and He was Jamal born Boyer on thing. third
2: base, and he thinks that he, like, built this program. He didn't. So and you've and been it, listening
1: to Jim Harbaugh lately. And it's
2: gone down since he took it over. I
1: and mean, what has he actually won? I guess he won a couple. Uh, did he win a big team? Yeah, I guess with Justin Fields he did. But you...
2: Oh, and Justin get blown out by your
1: rival two years in a row. When you think you're going, if you win that game, you probably get a college football playoff.
2: I mean, and he's still whining about the not targeting call.
1: Yeah, I think that's where this question comes from. This is
2: a month late, over a month later. Like and stop. you're wrong. You're wrong. But it doesn't matter. Move on. Yes, this it, is not right. good for your players to constantly see you whining and complaining. There's nothing he can do. To there's nothing that's going to change the outcome. So just move on.
1: And that you're. I, I think you're right. You're, that permeates your culture. Think about like 2017, Charlie. Obviously, we lost the national championship game. I was there. You were there. Remember Tyler Simmons, right? Tyler Simmons was onside. Yes. Like he was clearly. No, he was not offsides. Like we, this, we know this. Tyler Simmons was not offsides. Did you ever hear Kirby Smart publicly mention that one single time?
2: Well, I mean, I have a horrible memory, but no, I don't think so.
1: No, I, I follow all these all these things. I listen to every press conference the man has ever done. I have never one time in my life heard him even remotely mention that. And I know Alabama may, may have a false start maybe they missed that call. I understand all that. But Kirby does not make excuses like that. Now, he might be privately seething, but he doesn't do that publicly because you don't want, to, like, all these coaches say, no excuses, no excuses. Alabama has, like, in their facility, football facility, has this sign that just says, no excuses, like, in huge, giant letters. What has Nick Saban been doing for the past year, two years, making excuses ever since we beat them uh, in the national championship game, trying to make excuses for that, then you make excuses why, why Jimbo Fisher beat you in, in recruiting, and then why you have two losses, and why, and he goes on national TV trying to beg to get in the college football playoff. All you do is make excuses. All these coaches are sitting around talking, about, no excuses, no excuses. Then what do you do? You make excuses. So yeah, I, it's it's very frustrating. And uh, I, I do, I, I never liked him. I never understood quite where all of your hate for him came from. But now I get it. And at this point, Ryan Day's refusal to let this Marvin Harrison non-targeting call go, I find it incredibly comical. It's hilarious to me. Here we have a guy who has openly admitted publicly in a press conference setting that he has talked to a number of different officials from different conferences across the country. Hell, he's even talked to Steve Shaw, the head of officiating for the NCAA, and every single official he has talked to, every single authority he has talked to, to a man has told him it wasn't targeting. And what does he say to that? I strongly disagree. Are you kidding me? At the very least, that's one of the most public cases of confirmation bias that I have seen in the college football world. And I would even go as far as to say there's a strong element of narcissism in this refusal to accept reality that, that was not targeting. When you talk to every single person who would know, all these experts, and they all tell you, every single one of them tells you, no, it was not targeting, but you refuse to admit that you are wrong. You're incapable of admitting that you are wrong, that someone else is right. That is classic narcissism. Now, that's not altogether uncommon in the college football coaching rank, especially among the elite coaches or coaches who fashion themselves as elite coaches because they all have egos and they all think that they're the best and they have this drive to be the best. So it kind of comes to the territory. But to just be so brazenly public about it is, its I mean, you can be angry about it and that's fine. Like You, you can react however you want to. I find it hilarious at this point. And as to the call itself, like we've talked about it on on this show plenty of times, but with Ryan Day, and maybe he truly believes it, maybe he truly believes that that call was 100% targeting and there's no other way to look at it. Maybe he truly, truly does believe that. I think a big part of it is him trying to protect his fragile psyche because it's hard for him to admit that he's not as good as he thinks he is. But if he truly does, in his heart of hearts, believe that was targeting, then we live on separate planets. Like, we live in separate solar systems because it's... I can't see how you could possibly think it is targeting. Like, we are on totally opposite ends of the spectrum. I'm trying to do this objectively. Like, the game's over. I mean, I'm always going to be emotional about the game, but, like, we're removed from the immediacy of that emotion. And looking at it objectively, you can slow it down, get it from different angles. There is no way on planet Earth that is targeting. And Beyond Ryan Day, he's not only given his team a license to make excuses, and that's something that that will permeate their culture moving forward, but also their fan base as well, and so again, Twitter, social media, it is what it is, it it is just pure insanity, and you really can't take it all that seriously, but all of these Ohio State fans on social media coming out of the woodwork are all parroting everything that Ryan Day says times infinity, because they are convinced that it is targeting, And, and it's crazy, they will show clips of this play As though it is clear, indisputable evidence that it was targeting beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I look at these clips and I'm like, "What planet do you live on?" Like I I truly believe that I'm like living in an alternate reality. These people, we 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 don't live in the same reality. These are alternate realities that we live in because. They're using one piece of evidence, the same piece of evidence I look at and say, "Yeah, it's it's clearly shoulder to shoulder." And they're like, "Oh my god, look, it's indisputable, it's targeting." It's like I don't understand. Like this is an alternate reality. I don't I don't understand what we're living in right now. But hey, I mean that's college football, man, and you know that's one of the reasons. Like it drives you insane sometimes, but. That's why you love it. The passion, right? The passion. You've got to love it, and that's why I find humor in it because, I mean, they're so incredibly wrong, and they could not be more wrong, but they are so convinced that they are right. They could not be more convinced that they are right, and it's just hilarious, man. It's funny.
2: All right, the last question of the day comes from Liam. He says, if Todd Munkin ends up taking an NFL coaching job this season, who are some coaches not named Mike Bobo that you would be excited to land as our next offensive coordinator? I personally don't think he's taking any jobs. I feel like that would have already been announced.
1: It, every passing day, I feel more and more that is the case, Charlie. Um, but the Baltimore Ravens job is still when he had a second interview with think That's the biggest threat right now. But this is an interesting question, uh, and let's uh, dive into it real quick. Now, First off, hopefully this is not a question that we really have to answer in reality. Hopefully Todd Munkin is back for another year, another year after that, another year after that, until the man retires. I think that's probably unlikely that he'll be here that long at this point. But hey, a man can dream, right? But for argument's sake, for the sake of this question, let's just uh, assume that he's going to take a job somewhere this season. Ravens, which is probably one of the only jobs left. Right? I guess you can take the, the Bucks' job, but I don't see how that job is attractive. But let's just say he takes one of those jobs. Take your pick. But if he does move on, and we are in the market for a new offensive coordinator, I have already gone on record saying that I, I would not be upset with Mike Bobo hire. I know that's somewhat controversial. There's certainly a segment of the fan base that wants nothing to do with Mike Bobo, and I, I guess I get that to some degree. I know his recent resume hasn't been all that sterling. I, I laid out why I think there's more context to that, and you can't just look at that on the surface. Don't want to dive into that right now, but I would, be, I would be fine with Mike Bobo. Now, saying that, I also don't necessarily think that he would be the best person that we could hire, and he's not necessarily the best coordinator out there, but I I think it would be a really good fit. Obviously, his relationship with Kirby, his uh, background as an alumnus, his previous tenure here in Athens, like he knows a lot of the key players behind the scenes. There would also be a lot of continuity with him having been a part of the program last year and understanding what Todd Munkin was trying to do. There'd be some carry over there. Would it be the same system? No, it would be the same system. It would be very similar in terms of what Kirby's looking for and style of play offensively. And he also had a lot of success here the last couple of years of his uh, OC career at the University of Georgia. So I don't think it would be a bad of a hire. As some people do, some people just dismiss that out of hand. I am not one of those people, but I'm certainly open to other candidates as well. And speaking of other candidates, that is obviously what the question is about. Let's uh, let's identify some of those. The first guy that comes to mind for me is the Baylor offense coordinator, Jeff Grimes. I, I think it's a perfect fit. We have yet to see an offense under Kirby Smart really stray too far away from the identity that Kirby really wanted to establish once he first got here on the offensive side of the ball. The hard-nosed, physical, establish-the-run approach, and then we're going to take play-action, vertical shots off of that, and try to create explosive plays down the field. That approach is carried over from coordinator-coordinator. Some with different levels of success than others obviously Todd Munkin has taken it to an entirely different level we know that Jeff Grimes runs an offense at Baylor and did BYU as well that is extraordinarily similar it is a tough downhill physical rushing attack and they want to work play action off that And he has had a lot of success at BYU. He parlayed that into the job at Baylor. They won the Big Twelve championship in 2021. Took a step back this past year. dealt with a lot of injuries. Lost a lot of key players offensively. They also don't have the talent level that we have. They don't have the guys. You know, they don't recruit the level to where they can just plug and play and replace key contributors the way that we do. Jeff Grimes is a fantastic coordinator, and I would be over the freaking moon if we were able to 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 steal him. I would I would consider that a coup. Like that guy is awesome. And he runs a style of offense that Kirby seems to be kind of beholden to. So he'd be my first choice. I would certainly look long and hard at him and make him say no. If he did, uh, another guy I would look at, let's go a little further west, let's go out to Utah, Andy Ludwig, who has some SEC experience at Vanderbilt. wasn't super successful as a coordinator at Vanderbilt, but who is? I mean, relative to other Vanderbilt coordinators, had a lot of success. But has done a really nice job out of Utah. Again, it's a place where you don't have a ton of talent. You don't have Georgia-level talent. Cam Rising's a really good quarterback, but you don't have the kind of talent that he would would have access to here in Athens. And year after year, they continue to produce really good offenses. Maybe not always elite offenses, but really, really good offenses considering the talent level there. And he runs, again, a style very similar to what Kirby Smart wants our identity to be on the opposite side of the ball. He wants to run the football. He wants to play action shots down the field. He actually, I love his quarterback run game. Now we have to have a quarterback that can actually do that. So if it's Gunnar Stockton or Brock Grief, then you can do a lot of that. He's also got a level of creativity that I, I think is really fascinating. I think he does a really good job of scheming things up and doing it a little bit of a different way. Runs a lot of two tight end personnel, a lot of 12 personnel. Same thing with Jeff Grimes as well. And you got to take advantage of our tight ends and those guys have a background of doing that. I mean, think about the, Utah, this, not just this past year, past couple of years. They're best threats offensively were their tight ends. You know, this year it was it was Dalton Kincaid once Brent, Brent Keithy went down, but Brent Keithy was their guy for a couple years. I mean, he was a guy that was going to be a first round draft pick probably in the NFL draft. Got banged, got hurt earlier in the year, missed the rest of the season. Then Dalton Kincaid came in. He was their second tight end, and he played a lot anyway, but he didn't get as many targets because Keithy was there. And he, all of a sudden, Kincaid starts getting all these targets against USC. The first in the first match, he like like sixteen catches against them, something crazy like that. So he uses tight ends very very well, and that's clearly something that. That we have invested a lot of energy into recruiting that room and we are loaded and ready to go there so those are probably my top two guys I would look at and the third guy is kind of left field but I just love his offenses I love watching his offenses play and really wherever his he's gone his offenses have been highly highly productive and that's Robert and I who is now the offensive coordinator in NC State. He was previously at Virginia. So remember when Virginia got really good? for oh, Really good is maybe a, a little bit strong, but got good, pretty good, and really, maybe even really good under Bronco Mendenhall. I mean, they played for an ACC title. They played in a New Year's Six Bowl game. That was Robert and I coordinating those offenses. And those offenses were so fun to watch with Bryce Perkins back there, at quarterback, and then Brennan Armstrong in in 2020 and 2021. And then Mendenhall just randomly decides he wants to retire and resigns. So Robert and I ends up going to Syracuse. Syracuse was was dead, like DOA, dead on arrival. Dino Babers was probably going to get fired, but he lands Robert and I. And Robert and I comes in in one year and – Completely turns that thing around. Their offense was horrific in 2021, just so 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 bad. And all of a sudden, he comes in there with Garrett Schrader, a guy who was terrible in 2021, and turns him around, turns the offense around. They make a bowl game, and then he parlays that into the NC State offensive coordinator job. And I just love watching his offenses. Wherever this guy has gone, it, it is the most creative offense that you will see in college football. It's so fun to watch, whether it's quarterback, run game. They, they have these players they, they call football players. They, that's, that's a position, it's football player. It's FBP, football player, because those are guys that can be fullbacks, they can be tight ends, they can be receivers, they can do like wildcat quarterback stuff. They just do all sorts of different things. Like Keaton Thompson, who was at Mississippi State originally as a quarterback, came to Virginia to, to be a quarterback, and then he became like a, a tight end kind of at first, basically, and then he was like now a receiver, and they use him in the, in the quarterback run game a little bit. They hand the ball off to him in the backfield, do all sorts of different things. It is an awesome offense, and they take advantage of the skill sets that their players have, and that's one of the things that I always look for in a coach is do you maximize the skill sets of the players that you have on hand and everywhere Robert and I has gone he has done that and he's done it with flair and creativity and it's just a blast to watch it's not just fun to watch it's highly highly effective and successful and it has been that way any and everywhere that man has gone I don't think we would look in that direction but like if You're looking for a surprise name, the guy out of left field. Robert and I, it's just a a guy I have a ton of respect for. But I would definitely get Jeff Grimes and Andy Ludwig first. They're great fits for what we like to do and for the talent that we have on hand. They've been a lot of, they've been. Uh, several different places and had a lot of success so those would be names i would look at if it's not gonna be mike bobo but all right guys that's all we got for you today i will be back one more time this week we'll do the second edition of our friday five well, i've got five topics for you that have caught my attention over the course of the week and we'll dive into that on friday so make sure to check back for that guys but I appreciate you guys being here for charlie i'm tyler and as always go dogs.